I've got uh, a small place to start here. This image here is going to represent Angela. Angela was a young adult that I was working with that I helped bring through a BIC course uh, as she was making her way into the Christian faith. And she had maybe what we would call three barriers to becoming a Christian. Three big ones, anyways. Uh, the first was that she had several family members that identified as practicing homosexuals. Uh, she, had also, she was also going into a career uh, studying science in which she was very daily having to struggle with uh, Darwinian evolution and other worldview issues. And then third big thing was when she was in high school, she was sexually assaulted by a high school coach along with several other girls. And so as I was helping her through her BIC course, her Bible information course, uh, she had to also be testifying on trial uh, in that time period against this coach. Now, our logic tells us that she had every reason to fail at becoming a Christian. This whole Christianity thing was turning her family completely upside down. Her entire education was against what the church taught, and she also had every reason to hate God. And yet, Angela was no problem for the Holy Spirit. No problem. We tend to think that just one of these problems means that it's a waste of time for us to be sharing the gospel and to be encouraging people with our Christ. Now, why is it that we think this? Well, part of it is because there seems to be this statistical thing against us. If I were to ask you how many young adults who begin their college years as Christians will by the end of their time lose their faith, you think it's 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%? We're being told 70%. Okay, at least this was the, the figures about 10 years ago. I got a feeling it's probably not all that much better uh, 10 years later today as well. This, of course, is from Barna studies and things like that. Barna estimates that roughly 70% of high school students who enter college as professing Christians will leave with little to no faith. These students usually don't return to their faith even after graduation, as Barna projects that 80% of those reared in the church will be disengaged by the time they are 29. Now, what exactly is it, then, that is um, making these young adults disengaged? Well, if we're just trying to put together some topics of what is it that young adults, broadly speaking, think about the church. Now, obviously, not all young adults think like this, but polling has provided this stereotype for us. And there are maybe three issues that kind of rise to the surface if we're going to at least put some language to it. The first is that young adults find the church exclusive in an increasingly inclusive world. Second, they find us out of touch with culture, such as topics like sexuality or science. And finally, they find us antagonistic to doubt and discussion. Now, if these polls, if these summaries are at least at all correct, right, if this is giving us any general idea of what it is that we've got to face, how as a church might Christ be equipping us to answer these kinds of questions? So this man, his name is Gary Habermas. He is a Christian apologist and philosopher, and he became very famous within the uh, Christian apologetic community for developing what he called the minimal facts approach to the apologetics. Uh, minimal facts approach to the resurrection. 
And he spent a good 20 years of his academic career researching the historicity of the resurrection. He put together this apologetic defense of the resurrection. It's a form of apologetics that I teach very uh, frequently in my BHL courses and when I was in campus ministry. And he would take this to some of the biggest universities all over the world, places like Harvard and Oxford. And he noticed something, that even if he could address all of the intellectual questions that people had about the faith, all of the intellectual challenges, that he could provide good apologetic responses to them, students were still losing their faith. And so this was making them think, well, what's going on if I can meet all of their intellectual objections, and yet they're still losing their faith? And so he did a bit of a switch for a while, and he decided to study doubt. And so he then spent a long time doing lots of polling and doing a lot of work in psychology and doubt and things like that. And he came up then with a small little model of the different types of doubt, especially that he was recognizing in young adults. And he categorizes three types of doubts that young adults, now of course all of us have these, but in his context, young adults struggle with. The first is what he calls factual doubt. Now factual doubt is when there is some fact that you hold to be true that comes into conflict with another fact. For example, you hold it to be factually true that the earth is not billions of years old, that it's much younger, but then you get into a classroom and you maybe have a professor or other students that say, nope, the universe is billions of years old. You have a factual problem here. The facts that you hold to be true don't line up with the facts that someone else holds to be true. And because of that, they come into conflict and you have what he calls factual doubt. Now what he discovered here is that if you have factual doubt and you then maybe go to the Christian community that you have, maybe other Christians, maybe a pastor, and you don't have those factual doubts resolved, you still keep your faith by and large. This is not the reason that people lose their faith. You can live with some kind of incongruity between maybe facts that you hold and questions that you have about them. What was interesting was this next level of doubt. Now, the vast majority of doubt that students have, he called emotional doubt. And this is not a factual issue. This is an emotional or existential issue. This is when you are just simply crying out, why God? Right? Why God is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why would you choose to do things this way? Why would you take this person out of my life? Uh, why would you let this person dump me? Whatever it might be, these are deep emotional questions that you have, not necessarily factual ones. And what Habermas discovered was that if when you had factual questions, factual doubts, and you went to the church and you didn't feel satisfied, by what the Christian community was able to do to help you with those, when you had your emotional doubts, you did not go to your Christian community. Instead, you'd go somewhere else, and of course, if you go somewhere else with your emotional doubts, you are not going to be put in contact with the means of grace, right, in our language. And because of that, then, you lose your faith. Right? Eventually, you will get answers somewhere else. They will not be answers that are drawn from God's word, and then a faith crisis takes place. The third type is volitional doubt. This has more to do with concepts dealing with the will, where you kind of see yourself. For our conversation this morning, the big ones are factual doubt and emotional doubt. And so we can understand 
with someone like Angela, who is going through the different struggles that she has as a young adult, whether that's things at home or things in the classroom, that she probably had lots of factual doubts. She probably had lots of emotional doubts as well. And so what was she able to find in our small little part of the church to help her with those things? What did we design as a congregation to help meet these doubts. And that's what I'd like to spend some time this morning talking about. So my philosophy is pretty simple. I think that there's kind of three things if we're to ask what can we do as a church, what could we strive to kind of work on? There's really kind of three areas. One is what we're going to call building a home, that young adults need a home, a community, why? So that when they have their factual doubts, they've got a place where they can meet the needs of their heads, we'll say, as well as a place for their hearts where they can meet their emotional doubts. And so we want to be, on the one hand, able to provide a home for them, a community where they can bring these doubts to their friends, right, and to people that they respect, and so that when they're there, we are then prepared and ready on the one hand for factual doubts, and on the other hand, wielding God's word for emotional doubts, and that we have a strategy that we're teaching for how to wield God's word to deal with emotional doubts. So to begin with, we're going to talk a little bit about the home. So if we're to kind of look at general studies about loneliness today, we notice something rather interesting. Virtually everyone tells us that studies this, we are in the loneliest time of all of human history. And the loneliest people, according to the polling data, are not necessarily older people that are maybe isolated in old folks' homes, but instead they are the young adults that are connected to millions of people through their devices. That in fact they're the ones that report more feelings of loneliness and isolation than anyone else. There are some scary, scary survey results out there. Uh, this just flipped me the first time I read this. The General Social Survey found that the number of Americans with no close friends has tripled since 1985. Zero is the most common number of confidants reported by almost a quarter of those surveyed. Let that sink in for a minute. For a minute. Almost 25% of the people surveyed said they had zero confidants. Zero. That means no one that they could bring their either intellectual or emotional doubts to. Zero. Likewise, the average number of people Americans feel they could talk to about important matters has fallen from three to two. And this uh, article is about 10 years old. Uh, mysteriously, loneliness appears most prevalent among millennials. I think if we were to do this today, all the research tells us it's now Generation Z. Maybe about on par with millennials uh, when it comes to this. So there is an epidemic of loneliness that is just ravaging young adult communities. On some level, on some level, that is what the research is telling us. So what's interesting is, well, if we want to take this this confidant idea seriously, studies suggest the brain is only capable of a social network of 150 people. So you might have 500 friends on your Facebook account or Instagram or something like that, but they're not really your friends, right? This, like, this isn't fooling anyone. We can only have around 150 meaningful uh, uh, people in our lives, a social network of that number. The average meaningful circle of friends, so people you can actually be friends to, and receive kind of friendship from is somewhere between 12 to 15 people. 
That should be kind of interesting if we're kind of thinking about the life of Christ, maybe. Uh, you can meet the social needs of only four to five people. It takes between 40 and 60 hours to form a casual friendship. It takes around 80 to 100 hours to transition to being a friend and more than 200 hours together to become good friends. Now, this is something to seriously think about as leaders in your congregations. In a church family, if it takes that long to create meaningful friendships, who needs to supply the meaningful friendships? I think for talking, is it, so 24 hours versus seven days a week, that's uh, 168, right? So there's 168 hours in a work week. Expecting, for example, a pastor to maintain all the relationships is like asking him to work 169 hours. It's not just unhealthy, it's literally impossible, right? It is mathematically impossible for him to carry that kind of load. So, where does this need to come from? It has to come from the people, right? This has to come from the congregation and each individual within the congregation to supply these meaningful friendships. Now, are Sunday worship, Bible study, and coffee hour places that create new friendships? Or more often than not, do they simply maintain already established ones? Now, just because sometimes we call it fellowship hour, and sometimes we talk about the theological concept of fellowship happening during worship, we have to understand that that's different than a context that makes friends, right? The function of worship is not to socialize, right? The function of worship is to praise and proclaim, right? It is to interact with the means of grace, so that our, our Holy Father, that he feeds us with his word. Right? That's, we can't expect something that's designed to do one thing to do something else, like be the place where friendships are created on a deep kind of social-emotional level. We know that it is, it is entirely possible, and it probably happens every week at our church, that someone walks in, they sit down, they worship, they are fed by God's word. Right? The, the means of grace does its work, but then they get up and they just leave without ever having any actual relationships created. Right? And what happens typically at our potluck dinners? How often uh, do we go sit somewhere else and meet someone that's new that we've never met before and ask probing questions? Or do we tend to kind of gravitate towards our family members and our friends that we already have? And that's okay. Right? That's okay. But we just need to recognize that maybe, maybe those kinds of meetings are not designed to do what we're talking about here, right? So what kinds of events or ministry practices necessarily create new friendships? What, times of, what types of things that if you do these, then, then it is almost certain that relationships will be created or deepened? What kinds of things can we do uh, that might facilitate this? And in my experience, there's really only kind of two practices that do this. The first is what we call small groups, right? Because in those small groups of, say, 12 to 15 people, right, we've got the context for building deep friendships. The other thing is mentoring programs. If two people sit down and have coffee for an hour, and they're there specifically for the purpose of creating a mentoring friendship, I guarantee you that they will leave with a deepened understanding of each other that they would have never been able to achieve at 10 minutes of coffee at church, right? There is something different. Now, maybe, maybe it's not an ideal mentoring situation, and 
you know, they're going to find mentors somewhere else. But obviously within that hour, hour and a half time, they will get to know each other in a deep way. Now, I mentioned small groups with some fear and trembling. Uh, a friend of mine accept, uh, accepted the call to be pastor at a church that had imploded from small groups going rogue. And it took him a decade to fix the damage. Uh, at the same time, we know that Christians need to be in each other's homes doing Christian things, right? Like talking about the Bible, like using long gospel on each other and the keys and praying, right? We know that this is the activity that should be happening in Christian homes. How can we go about doing this? What's interesting is that Jesus kind of models some of these concepts for us. If I were to ask you who's the most lonely person in the New Testament, the most lonely person in uh, the Gospels, at the top of my list would be Zacchaeus. I'm guessing that Zacchaeus had zero confidants, right? That he had zero people in his life that he could take his deep questions to. And what happens when Jesus shows up? When Jesus reached the spot where he's up there in the sycamore tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I've got a sermon prepared for you. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And we can just, all we have is our imagination to guess what that dinner must have been like, right? Uh, so not only did they break bread and eat together, but just think, just think of what dinner conversation with Jesus must have been like for Zacchaeus, right? When he is now having, for the first time in a long time, someone that is interested in building a relationship with him, right? Uh, what was... What were the reasons that the Pharisees were just so ticked off with Jesus? So on the one hand, he was breaking their, their laws, right? So he was doing things like eating on the Sabbath. The other big thing that we're told about was that Jesus was eating with the wrong people, right? He was eating with the wrong people. He was getting together in the homes with the wrong people. And we have this put together in all of the Gospels. I've got kind of a harmony here. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, says Jesus, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? The home over food and drink was the setting where Jesus unleashed God's word to do its work, right? That was the context where we find him not only becoming friends with people that probably desperately needed friends, but then after making those friends, right, we have him doing his ministry, right? It's happening in that context. Uh, growing young, was a, a book that came out that was giving studies based on, humanly speaking, looking at all the congregations in North America that were able to retain young adults. Uh, what were they all kind of have in common, all these quote-unquote successful churches at retaining young adults? And the results were then put together in this book, Growing Young. And here's uh, kind of the heart of really what the book was trying to communicate. While young people may be able to find great preaching online, Many told us they're aching for more than that. They want to be in relationship with leaders who know their name and model a life of faith. Similarly, 
When we asked what makes your church effective with younger people, with young people, only a quarter mentioned worship at all, and only 12% mentioned anything about music. Overwhelmingly, nearly one in three share about its warmth. Now, warmth is more than superficial community. It's like family. In fact, the phrase like family surfaced as the most common term young people used to describe their church in our interviews and field visits. Warmth, like family, right? Like these are, these are the words that are rising to the surface. Now, just think about this for a minute, this idea of like family. I, I would invite you to think, you know, Make a list of what family does for each other. So in your life, what is it that you expect family to do for each other? Now, when I moved to Ottawa with my family to do ministry, we didn't know anyone in the city when we showed up. We didn't know a single soul in that city. And so we needed the congregation to become our family. And they were more than willing to do it because I was the new pastor. Now, what were the types of things that I needed them to do? I needed someone to pick me up when I flew into the airport at one o'clock in the morning, right? I needed, I needed someone's name that I could call that I, I did not feel was a problem for them to pick me up at one, two in the morning from the airport. I needed someone to tell me about uh, the mechanic to trust in town, right? Or to help me with an oil change. I needed someone to invite me and my family to their place for Easter or for Christmas, right? For those events, that family, is generally the place where you end up. Right now, think for a minute about new converts to the Christian faith whose family, maybe, are not Christian. What do you think they do after church on Easter Sunday? What do you think they do after church or maybe before church and Christmas Eve? Right? How often do we think about doing these things for the brand new members in our church, right? And I'm not saying we don't do this, but I'm saying we need to be thinking about this, right? This needs to be on our minds in some way, shape, or form. So we began to kind of model something like this uh, at our campus ministry in Ottawa. So I served in Ottawa for eight years. There, we had a campus ministry called Illuminae, and Illuminae uh, served the University of Ottawa and Carleton University, two major universities in town there. And when I got there, this was the first group of uh, people that got together for our campus ministry. This was our very first photo on the very first day of campus ministry for me. Uh, uh, far on your right-hand side over there, that's my first adult baptism, uh, which was very awesome as well. Um, and so, very small community, and what did we end up doing? We just met in my home. We met in my home. Uh, my wife is a phenomenal cook. She cooked an awesome dinner for them. We had Bible class, we prayed, and that's just what we did. Uh, eight years later, we were still meeting in my home, <laughs> having dinner, having Bible class, praying for each other, and then hanging out. And this is just what we did every Friday for the eight years that, that I was there. And so uh, this became the heart of our campus ministry. Some Fridays we ended up doing things on campus or had some larger events, but this was what we just did regularly, right? And it just kind of was a place then that we had tons of opportunities to kind of grow and ask questions, and the format of this was basically we had dinner at 5.30, and we, our motto was we want the best dinner that these students have all week to be in our home. 
And so my wife was a phenomenal cook. She would just pull out all the stops. The congregation would give us plenty of money so that we could have really nice meals. So we had the best meal that they had all week in our home. After that meal, uh, we then had a Bible class, went anywhere from an hour to sometimes two hours long, depending on the discussion that the students wanted to have. Then we had prayer. And prayer is where the magic happens, when you go around and you're asking people, now, after God's word's been percolating in your hearts for the last hour, what have you been thinking about, right? What, what do we want to talk about? What do we want to pray and encourage each other about? Then we would leave our doors open until the last student would want to leave. And so this would mean almost every Friday uh, we'd be busy until maybe uh, midnight or one in the morning. Some students, this is just where they would hang out with their friends on Fridays. And just think then, if we're kind of ending our, our Bible class prayer around 8 o'clock and you had another three hours, another three hours to, to talk, build relationships, to mentor, to counsel, right in that time period, just think of what we were just blessed with opportunities to do in that, in that context. Um, so when we're talking small groups, what do we mean exactly? Well, up to around 15 people, that's kind of what we're shooting for. Dinner, the way that some congregation, congregations practice it, they don't have dinner, maybe it's shorter, about an hour, but man, like when you eat, when you are eating with someone, like that's, that, that's, that's a great place, right, where to build relationships and to grow. Uh, you need God's word, otherwise it's not a small group, right? You need the means of grace present there doing its thing, prayer together. There's always big questions about oversight, right? So how do you make sure that your small groups don't run rogue and things like that? And that's why ideas like trained leadership, some type of program is deeply important for this. Now, uh, James Hine nailed all of these things in his breakout yesterday. Uh, I am not an expert at this at all. It's just something that we practice, so don't email me about it. Email him. Uh, he is uh, fantastic at explaining uh, the formats of doing these things. So that's what we're talking about with a home, right? And now think for a minute about Angela, right? Uh, think about what young adults think about the church, and imagine if you've got a home, right, that's open to young adults. So they think that the church is exclusive in an increasingly inclusive world. It's really hard, really hard to have a reputation for being exclusive when your doors are open, right? When you are having people in your home breaking bread with you, when you are feeding them and you are saying, we are there for whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever it is that you want to talk about, whatever it is you want to push back on, we're there for the conversation, right? It's hard to be accused of being out of touch with culture when you are inviting culture right through your doors. It is hard to be accused of being antagonistic towards doubt if you are saying, I want the doubts of the city to be expressed right here around my dinner table. Right? I, I, I have designed my home for doubts. It's very hard. So with that, let's transition to our second part here. We've got a home that is specifically being designed for head needs. So maybe a real quick question to open things up here. How do you respond to the claim that the message of Jesus as Savior from sins evolved over centuries? Very common question that I heard all the time. It's a very common uh, 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 stereotype of the church that somehow Jesus, uh, when he actually was walking on the earth and what he was doing was very different than what the church said about him three centuries later. That the real Jesus probably was just some kind of Buddha-like teacher that did not claim to be a Savior from sins. How do you respond? To something like this? Do you have some kind of packaged, prepared way of responding to something like this? This is how I would go about doing it and how I've trained my students to do it. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter, we've got there this very special thing, a very special gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, this creed that's found there. He begins with these words, for what I received, I passed on to. What I received, past tense, I passed on to as of first importance. In other words, if Paul received this already, it's not original with him. He got it from somewhere else. Right? And if he's already passed it on to the Corinthians, then this means this isn't the first time they've heard this. Right? It's already been something that they've received from before. Paul is, in essence, just reminding them of something that they've already heard, that they've already confessed, just like we recite creeds regularly. Right? Well, if he had already received this from somewhere else, and they already had had this passed on to them, how early, then, is this creed? And note what the creed says. This is what they had already received and had already passed on, that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and so forth. This is the earliest creed that we have, the earliest Christian creed, and it begins with the phrase, Christ died for our sins. Okay, now how early? This is uh, Gerd Ludemann. He is in no way, shape, or form a friend of uh, conservative Christianity. He is a very liberal Bible scholar. He does not hold a high view of Scripture. And this is what he says about this creedal statement. The elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 falls into the time between 30 and 33 CE. Okay, this critical biblical scholar says that this creed here in an authentic Pauline epistle was, was already composed within three years of the crucifixion. Now, sometimes you'll look at scholars that'll give it maybe a five-year gap that, uh, from the time of crucifixion uh, and the resurrection to about five years after, somewhere in that. But what this means is that we've got a creed that's being circulated in the Christian church for within five years of the crucifixion. Okay? So how do you respond to the claim that the message of Jesus as a Savior from sins evolved over centuries? We have concrete data to completely refute that. And biblical scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, will openly say there were creeds circulating that Jesus died for sins within a couple years. This is not a late evolution, right? But to respond to a question like this, it's useful to kind of have something in your back pocket, right? Some way of being able to know what direction you want to take the conversation, what you're prepared to do. One more example, Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar, very critical uh, of confessional Christianity. And he says, we don't have the originals of the New Testament. What we have are thousands of copies of the New Testament that were made, in most cases, centuries later. These copies that were made centuries later contain numerous mistakes, thousands of mistakes, tens of thousands of mistakes, hundreds of thousands of mistakes. And he talks like that uh, when he's doing it. Uh, hundreds of thousands of mistakes. Is he right? There's really nothing to disagree with. <laughs> with what Ehrman is saying here. In the strict sense, what he is describing is true. He's a biblical scholar, he knows these things. But the way that he is delivering this kind of twists a little bit what the reality of the situation, it gives the wrong impression about what these, what he calls 400,000 errors or 400,000 variants are actually telling us. 
when you do the actual research and you look at the textual transmission of the New Testament, and uh, you'd come up with facts like this. And these facts, airmen would agree with them, okay? So the reason we have so many variants is because we have way more documents than any other ancient, ancient uh, historical text, okay? So a typical text like, uh, like Tacitus or Josephus, we have maybe 20, 30 manuscripts and manuscript fragments total. For the New Testament, we have over 5,000, and that's counting. There are bolts of manuscripts and manuscript fragments that have not been cataloged yet, okay? So the more manuscripts you have, the more variants you're going to have between them. The reason that number is so high, 400,000, is because God has given us an astronomically high number of manuscript and manuscript fra fragments compared to any other ancient text. Now, what's the quality of those variants? When you actually look at the variants, over 70% are questions of spelling, right? Uh, you have maybe uh, three or four different spellings for the name David, right, or something like that, uh, over 10 centuries of manuscript copying, right? So 70% are just spelling, just spelling errors. Less than 1% change meaning of the text, the actual, like, linguistic meaning of the sentence, and 0%, and Airmen would agree with this, 0% change any Christian doctrine. There is no variant in a manuscript that if you did not just choose any other variant at random, that would change the meaning of the text or the, the, any Christian doctrine. Right? It's helpful to maybe know just a little bit about textual criticism or at least where to go to answer some of the widespread attacks that are taking place against God's word today. So we've got on the one hand what we might call biblical apologetics, but we've got other things that students are dealing with. So we're going to look at a few uh, different quotes that were brought to me as I was a campus pastor. I had a student tell me, uh, this is what's being taught to me in one of my classes. We're studying Michel Foucault, who is a philosopher in the late 1900s, and he says things like this, the individual with his identity and characteristics is the product of a relation of power, okay? So what we have him saying here is that what it means to be you, how you understand yourself and everything else that goes into that, is simply the product of oppressor-oppressed forces functioning. That is your entire identity. The best way to understand you is through the different power struggles that have produced you. Now, this creates some very real intellectual doubts for Christians. Is my identity purely the result of ideologies of, of oppressor groups? Is that all I am? This flies directly in the face of biblical truth, right? So that says my identity is clearly bound in what Christ has done for me, and I know this, right? I can know this, and I can trust this. Now, Foucault's uh, philosophy, along with some others, have produced what we call critical race theory, right? Um, and we had, you know, very good discussions about this in some of the breakout groups. Um, but I had this quote brought to me from the very, very well-known introduction to critical race theory by Delgado and Stefanczyk. And they write, for the critical race theorist, objective truth, like merit, does not exist. Truth is a social construct created to suit the purposes of the dominant group. Now this creates some very real intellectual doubts in the mind of a Christian. Is there such a thing as objective truth, or is all truth constructed? Are we all stuck in our subjective point of views such that everything 
that I believe to be knowledge has simply been something that has been constructed. This, so much of educational and multicultural and linguistic theory is built on the foundation of what is called constructivism, that objective truth doesn't really exist. This flies in the face of the biblical truth, of the biblical word who says, I am the truth, right? Huge, very real intellectual doubts. We might find a lot of these doubts coming from the left end of the spectrum. There are some serious ones from things that we might now identify more on the right side of the spectrum. So John Stuart Mill, his famous work on liberty, this quote was brought to me one day. Uh, he writes, very important text for the development of ideas like freedom and liberty uh, in the West. And he writes, liberty consists in doing what one desires over himself, over his own body and mind. The individual is sovereign. Okay, look at that last phrase. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. So this is reflected in contemporary thinkers, especially libertarians like Milton Freeman, and this creates some very real intellectual doubt. Should the most important thing in my life be fighting for personal sovereignty? Sovereignty means literally that I am God of myself, okay? That is etymologically what that phrase means, right? Is that what I should be spending my life fighting for? I thought, that my life belongs to God. Critical theorists, they have redefined justice. When they use that word, it does not mean biblical justice. Mike Berg's uh, a presentation nailed this yesterday. But libertarian philosophies that come out of this redefine freedom. And it is not a biblical concept of freedom. Adi Afra is about giving up freedom for the sake of the other. So, when we look, on the one hand, at maybe biblical apologetics on, on the one hand and philosophical movements on the other, do you need to be a master of biblical apologetics and all these topics and every philosophical movement? No, you don't. But you do need to know where to go. Right? When someone has these intellectual doubts, can you say, let me walk with you? and I know where we should be walking together. And you need to be used to thinking deeply, okay? How do you get better at this thinking deeply thing? There's three ways to generally go about it. One is to have a liberal arts education. At the point of a liberal arts education is learning how to think critically. Second thing you can do is you can have a personal lifestyle where you take time to immerse yourself in deep thinking, and I'll give lots of examples of that. And then third, finally, you can teach in such a way that encourages deep critical thinking and reflection. This is what I ended up doing in our campus ministry in Ottawa. So when we did our Bible studies, we would have some series that clearly apologetic bents to them. For example, we had a series called True and Reasonable where I presented what I called an apologetic toolbox, kind of the bare minimum things that I want my students to be able to have in their back pocket as they're stepping into their classrooms. We had studies on where did the Bible come from, where we talked about the textual transmission of the New Testament as well as the formation of the canon, but we also had lots to say about what does scripture claim about itself, right? How does the New Testament cohere with each other in its claims that it's the inspired word of God. We studied very philosophical books uh, of the Bible, for example, on Ecclesiastes that just 
asks us to struggle with the question, well, what does it mean to have a meaningful life? We would, we would struggle right on with questions like the problem of evil. We had a series just on the problem of evil and pain and suffering. Uh, so why does God allow so much pain and evil in the world? How do I uh, think and communicate about ideas like hell with my friends and family? We would study books of the Bible like First Peter, but particularly think about them as Paul, as a Peter, addressing congregations that were being, uh, that were being persecuted, uh, that were having troubles because of their cultural message and the effect that it had on people. So we would do these things in our small groups, but we also then had larger events that we would do periodically on campus, where we would have speakers on campus, and the main purpose of this was not to beat someone over the head with a Bible, but instead to just simply provide an opportunity on a campus where people could see Christians engaging intelligently, right, and patient, patiently. And so we would have these talks on campus. At first, when we didn't have a whole lot of money, I would do these talks. And for a while, my kind of specialty was especially talking about maybe pop culture and philosophy and theology. So we had talks about zombie movies and TV series. We had talks about anti-hero shows like Breaking Bad. Uh, we had talks about uh, contemporary fantasy fiction, right, like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. And we asked ourselves, now what kind of natural knowledge truths might we be able to find in these things? Where might uh, these cultural artifacts uh, come in conflict with what Scripture teaches? about the world. But when we finally got some money, then we got able to, then we were able to bring in uh, some real big guns. So for example, we had Dr. Kerry Keene come in. Uh, he is a physicist at WLC, phenomenal uh, uh, Christian science apologist. And so we had him come in and talk about science and theology. And we packed rooms uh, when we had guests uh, come in to do these types of things. For Kerry Keene, we had over 100 people that gathered together. The vast, vast, vast majority of the people in the room were not wells. They were not, and they were able to witness a Christian talking intelligently about how he saw his vocation interact uh, with his faith. We had book clubs. At first, when we started book clubs, these book clubs are all whatever books you want to talk about, but we found out that a lot of times uh, you don't get maybe what you want out of a typical book club, so we switched over to a great books club. And so for a while, we were doing uh, in Ottawa books like The Iliad. Uh, we did uh, Don Quixote. We did Brothers Karamazov. When I came over to MLC, I had students that wanted to start that as well, so we've been doing uh, Brothers Karamazov, Lord of the Rings, Les Mis, we're doing right now. I want to do the Divine Comedy at some point as well. Now, why read great books? Well, on the one hand, if you are reading a great book, if you don't like the book, you know that it's you and not the book. <laughs> right? The book forces you to grow. It forces you to grow. Second, the natural knowledge of God comes through in special ways in great books. Okay, especially the non-Christian ones. And if it's a Christian, then you are struggling with emotional doubts with great minds. The Brothers Karamazov is entirely about the problem of evil. The Lord of the Rings is completely about hope in a hopeless situation. Les Miserables, uh, not so much like the musical the book itself, is all about the, transform the transformative power of forgiveness and grace and especially that grace accomplishes what political revolutions could never accomplish. And then third, reading good books, it makes you better at thinking. 
It makes you better at writing, better at talking, better at listening. It is a free liberal arts education. And so in these book clubs, not only then are you discussing these ideas, but you are modeling for your young adults that Christians can talk about culture, that they can engage with great ideas, right? And that this is a world that we are interested and interested in reaching out to. We had film nights as well. So we would very often have films where we would watch the entire film together, and then we would do a philosophical or theological talk back after that. Uh, these were huge hits on campus. Movies like, um, like, I don't know, Endgame, right, or something like that, we would get, you know, sometimes 50 students that would show up to them. Again, the vast majority of them, not Wells. Not Wells would show up, and then we would get to have an engaging conversation afterwards about the films. So think about this then. Right? So you not only have a home, but then you have a home where you are actively, intellectually engaging. Now, what do you think this does for those young adults that think that the church is exclusive in an increasingly inclusive world? Again, your doors are wide open, and you are saying, we are not exclusive. Right? We want anyone to be able to step into these doors with their cares and concerns. How about being out of touch with culture? It is very hard to be accused of being out of touch with culture when you are doing film nights, when you are inviting people to come and to talk about faith and science, when you are directly engaging culture, and that's the entire point of the event. How about being accused of being antagonistic to doubt and discussion? It's very hard to be accused of being antagonistic to doubt and discussion if you are saying, what are your doubts? Let's discuss them. And so think about what those effects would have had on Angela with her struggle. All right, last part. We'll try to do this quickly so that uh, we can get our uh, real heroes up here on the stage to field some questions for you. How about a house, uh, a house that is set up for the hearts of young adults. So Paul opens one of his epistles. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. This is an incredible invitation from our good God. You think of all of the comfort that you have received. And now he calls you to simply let that comfort spill out of your life and into the lives of the people around you. Now you've got the community, maybe. How then might you think about very, very uh, uh, precisely teaching how to comfort with God's word? Is there a way to go about doing this? So if we were to ask the question, how do I comfort with God's word? I did have a small kind of philosophy for how we wanted to train people to wield God's word. So um, I work with a man called Rick Lowen. He uh, is the creator of Cross Train. It's an organization uh, that, that works with our pastors. And he is basically a counselor, a Wells Lutheran trained counselor that counsels pastors. And he has created a method of spiritual care and counseling that's biblically based and dead simple to use. And one of the kind of mantras that's part of it is this idea of direction and not perfection. It's very hard if you're going into a counseling situation, if what you've got in mind is I wanna make this person uh, perfect in their sanctification, right? I wanna walk out of these doors with this person now feeling as if they are completely confident in a perfect life of sanctification. This is very difficult because it's impossible, right? It's impossible to do that. 
But maybe if we change things slightly, we can begin to feel a little bit more comfortable in that, com in that counseling room. How about if instead of perfection, our goal is this idea of direction. And the idea here is that what we want to do is we're thinking about the idea that the devil, the world, and the sinful flesh has gotten this individual off of God's word. And they are now seeing the world in a completely corrupted and false way. Let's use God's word to restore their vision. Let's use God's word to pull them back onto the truth of what the world is really like. So this idea of redirecting our thoughts and our feelings back onto the truths of God's word. And so I would train uh, students to do this. Um, I now train students to do this in my classes at MLC as well. And so we've got truths that we meditate on and how can we practically use these truths in spiritual care situations to realign people's thinking that their sinful flesh in the world has gotten off track, right? Now, what are some important biblical truths that you think are useful to remember in life for these situations? Uh, currently, right now, I've got a list of about 12. 12 that I think that if a young adult, or any Christian for that matter, would memorize, along with the passages that go along with it, uh, then these 12 truths would handle about 98% of spiritual care situations. I'm going to give you three of them, because we don't have much time. Here's a powerful one. You have the ability to say as a Christian, you have nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. No one else in the world, no one else except for Christians can say you have nothing to worry about. Why? Well, because Jesus tells us that. <laughs> right? I tell you, do not worry about your life. Where you'll eat or drink or your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So God providentially meets the needs of his creation. They're obviously important to him. He is their creator. How important are you? How valuable are you compared to the rest of creation? Did Jesus die for the sparrows? Right. Did he suffer separation from God on that cross for the sparrows. You are worth the value of Christ himself. Right? That is what Christ has done for you. And if that's how much you are worth, is there anything to worry about with your Heavenly Father in control of all things? Right? So think about Angela. Going back to her home, I remember having conversations with her where she's going to be going home, where her, she's got, again, you know, uh, uh, family members that are identifying as, as immediate family members, identifying as, as uh, practicing homosexuals, and she's terrified at how her family's going to respond to her. And when she did go back, they didn't take it very well either. They practically disowned her, right? What did we talk about? Now, it's very difficult to say to someone, don't worry, stop worrying, because we tend to just kind of worry all the more, right? But what we would do is we'd sit together and I would say, I know your body, God designed it a certain way, it's going to have certain emotions. The important thing is that you know that you don't have to worry. You don't have to. But your God is in control of this situation. He is with you every step of the way. Right? He purchased you. He purchased you. Right? That's truth number one. Uh, here's a second powerful truth. 
Uh, you guys know this one, Romans 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is working this out for our eternal good. There is nothing, notice the language, we know that in all things, there is nothing that God is not working out. Every pain that you have in life, every hardship, somehow our infinitely wise and powerful God has woven that into a good story that is ending well. You are somehow going to be better at the end of this all for the troubles that you have gone through. And so think about Angela and the hardships that she's going through in her school environment and all the ideological attacks that are at odds with her faith. Even those, even the attacks that you are going through God is working through them for your eternal good. Somehow you will end better than you began through all of this. That's his promise. One more. This one's pretty crazy. This will pass. There is no pain or hardship that a person is going through that you cannot tell them this will pass. John tells us the darkness is passing. Right? It now, it hasn't passed, still here, and there's plenty of darkness, so to speak, but it's passing. It's on its way out, because the true light, it's already shining, it's, it's there on the horizon, it's rising, the shadows are getting shorter. We have the ability to say this. And so, when Angela is talking to me about to go and stand in that box, in that courtroom, and testify, she's talking about just how incredibly alone she felt. Right now, horrible. She did not want to spend one second in that box and have to go through everything, relive all of the trauma. After spending a good enough time with her being a confidant, I could say to her, it's temporary. Okay, this is important to know. It's temporary. This will pass. There will be a time when you will look back. Maybe it'll be an eternity. I don't know. But it... There will be some time coming when you will look back and you will see this for what it was, a blink of an eye, a blink of an eye compared to being directly in the presence of your Savior. And it's important that people hear this. All this to say is that the, some kind of strategy for how to practically use God's Word to comfort. Right? We're talking about spiritual care counseling, and this is the work of every Christian, right? that we know how to use on the one hand, God's law. On the other hand, God's gospel. On the other hand, gospel truths like the theology of the cross, which directly inform our view of counseling. Do we know how to use the scripture that supports these truths in actual situations with our friends and family? These are the types of things that we worked on teaching in our campus ministry. And so again, if we're thinking about how young adults think about the church, exclusive and increasingly inclusive world, the doors are open, out of touch with culture, sexuality, science, all the topics, man, we, we have events that talk about those things. We want to engage with it. We want to share and discuss and think about these things with you. An antagonistic to doubt and discussion, oh man, are we not. Right? God has designed his church for doubt and discussion. That's why he created a church, was for doubt and discussion. And so, Ultimately, it's all really building up towards this last part that we've got a home, not just for intellectual head needs, but particularly for these emotional doubts that students are struggling with. So my philosophy is really very simple at the end of the day. Very simple. Do we have a home 
So that when someone has these intellectual doubts, emotional doubts, they know where to go, that they have friends that will walk with them through them. And that home, the home is prepared. It is ready. It is ready for the factual doubts. It is ready for the deep uh, uh, problems that they are facing intellectually. And at the same time, man, we are ready for their hearts. Right? We are ready for their emotional doubts. Hopefully my message isn't too subtle. The way to help young adults think is for you to become deeper thinkers. Right? Carefully listening and then responding to doubts with the theology that our God has given us that is perfect for the doubts. But first, you need to be the person that they're going to bring their doubts to. There is no greater moment in the life of a Christian than when someone brings doubts to you. No greater moment. Because what is it that you have for them? You have the comfort. Right? You have the comfort that you received from God's Word, and you are ready to give them that comfort. Thank you. Uh, so what I've got with you are a few very close friends of mine that we have up here. Uh, Renee, uh, right now she is at Martin Luther College, but she is a Canadian. Uh, she was with me in Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, everyone that we have up here are uh, first-generation Wells members. Uh, they don't have long family histories in, well, in, in, uh, in Wells, or at least in the Wells bubble in the Midwest here. And so Renee and her family, they joined our church. Uh, about 10 years ago now, I think, somewhere around that. And uh, so I had Renee in catechism, and then she was part of our campus ministry as well. Cam Schrader, uh, he's right now a junior at the seminary, but I was with him uh, this last year at MLC, where he was not just in some of my classes, but also in our book clubs. And so uh, we worked closely on some of this uh, stuff that we've talked about as well. And then last is Nick Riepschlager. Uh, Nick is a Canadian as well. He was our campus ministry coordinator up in Ottawa, Ontario. And so he had been doing uh, campus ministry with me for, I don't know, maybe uh, three, four years uh, before I took a call to Martin Luther College. Uh, thank you for the questions that were submitted. Um, it was hard to sort through them all. There were some good ones. Um, and and some, it's, it's perfectly fine if you just are reiterating things that Professor Thompson said, hearing it out of the mouths of young adults. Not that you're not that young. You're young enough, Luke. Uh, um, but but from, from really young adults, it just helps reinforce it. So uh, a question that came up a lot, what are the biggest negative perceptions that unchurched young people have about church and what can we better do to avoid those negative perceptions? I'll say one of the first things I remember a lot of my friends in high school saying, all atheists, um, was that they felt as though they were not represented individuals. They thought that everyone at church must be some saint among saints. We're up there with Peter and John and James and whoever else, when in reality what the church is for is people who need help, people who are sinners and need a hospital to go to. Um, and that's one of the things that we really need to let them know is that we're not inviting them to make them a saint. We're inviting them so that they can be healed. And we want them to see the glory um, that God gives us. 
And one comment I have heard specifically from one friend, but I've heard similar things from people, is that there's the criticism of how am I supposed to believe in a God who doesn't let anyone love whoever they want? And that's always a big comment. So it's, it applies to a lot of other things as well. Of It's the importance to open the doors of that understanding that it's about loving the sinner and hating the sin. We don't have problems with people. We have problems with sin. And that's really a strong point of trying to have these discussions and discuss, I don't, I don't have a problem with you. I don't hate you. The issue is with the sin, and we, it's through this love that we want to deal with this. It's not coming out of a place of bigotry or anything like that. It's coming out of a place of love, of we want what's best for you. I think the end of the question was, what can we do to kind of counteract this mm -hmm. resistance? And I think, prove them wrong. If, if young people don't think they have a home in your church, prove them wrong. Um, you, you wouldn't go to a choir performance and turn to the person next to you and say, do you know what song they're singing? You'd listen to them. Um, and you, you would listen to whatever song they were singing and then talk about that song. And so if you're wondering how to talk to young people, ask them. Thank you. Another question came up a couple of times. Many of our churches trend older. Uh, you look around at worship and it's a lot of gray hair. Um, they don't have a ton of young adults. In some cases, some of our churches have no young adults. As they attempt to reach out to all people, do they have any chance of reaching young adults? And if so, what would it take? Well, it's similar to what Pastor Thompson was saying. When we had those on-campus talks, when we had those on-campus events, the vast majority were not Wells members. And even in our week-to-week -week, uh, Bible studies, like the small group of 15, maybe three, four, five of us were Wells. It was, it was always, uh, it was always majority outreach, these campus ministry events we had. So if you don't have young adults in your church, maybe look, are you in a university town? Can you find a way to hold an event on the university just to get people interested, just to get people in your doors? And then the big point is have a discussion with them on campus. What Pastor Thompson did a lot is he, uh, his on-campus events were very apologetic often. Um, he used a lot of apologetics. He would bring it into the Christian perspective, but he wouldn't be sitting there uh, every slide with Bible verse after Bible verse. It was very much a, let's look at the pop culture, take something philosophically out of it, especially with the movies, look at it from a philosophical perspective, and then look at that philosophical perspective from a Christian lens. So that was a way we kind of introduced people to this is our general belief. It wasn't, these are these Bible verses, this is what we believe, this was the, this is in general what we stand for. If you're interested, come see us for our weekly, weekly Bible studies. Come have food, have dinner with us, start making these connections. But it was very important to just go to the campus, if there's something nearby, have that first initial discussion, and then you can start growing those connections with the people who are interested, who want to learn more. The best part of every successful youth ministry program is Jesus Christ. Fair? Okay. So you can have the most charismatic youth leaders ever, 
you can have the, the most crazy fun mixer games ever. You can have the hippest, most with it worship ever. And if, and if your teens or your, your young people don't go home, having seen a vulnerable, authentic representation of what it looks like to live as a Christian, if they can't see themselves in your church, then they will not stay in your church. And, and so you see statistics like, like 80% of, of young people by the time that they're, they're 20 will have left their church. Um, and, and I think that that maybe is partially where that statistic comes from. Is there an opportunity in your church for young people to meaningful, meaningfully connect with the gospel except for one hour on Sunday morning? If the answer is no, then that's a good place to start. I was going to start with something else, but I'm just going to follow in Cam's footsteps for a moment. I mean, uh, talk about not listening to the parable about the sower and the seeds. The worst thing about those fireworks services, as I like to call them, you know, great music, you've got strobe lights, you've got people f dancing um, on their feet the whole time. It's not that they aren't, um, quote unquote, feeling God's presence, but they aren't listening and they aren't actually paying attention to the words um, that God has given us. What, and I'm gonna shift for a moment. Um, another thing I think is really critical is actually listening to them, not in the sense of like hearing them out on where they're from or anything like that, but being open to how they fit into this. Um, generations, everyone has their own story and Sometimes when there's that huge generational gap, it's hard to understand where younger people are coming from or older people are coming from. And that's the hardest part, I would say, is that if you can't understand the differences that they've grown up with um, and the differences that they have been subjected to, it's gonna be hard to get them to stay because they feel like they don't belong. Um, not because you aren't making an effort, but because subconsciously there's something that's not working. But by far the most important thing is that if you're going to give them the word, give it wholeheartedly. You know, don't say, um, Jesus died for you, you are forgiven, and have that be the end of it. Say, you know, Jesus died for you, you are forgiven, this is what happened, this is how we got here, this is what your life will look like in the future, this is what your life will be like in heaven. Give them everything so that they are constantly coming back to this, this well and that their thirst is constantly being quenched. I think we got time for one more kind of quick one, and this is, uh, it's a little uh, obtuse. So in, in the course of general ministry practices, so things like, you know, worship, Bible study, can you share if there's anything that young adults especially appreciate or conversely anything that they don't appreciate? And I, I sensed in these questions what they're getting at is that a lot of churches think there's a silver bullet. If we just get the right music or we dress the pastor the right way, we're going to gain all sorts of young people. I think they're getting at, is there, is there a silver bullet um, or not? Or just, again, what, would, what are some ministry practices that young adults might appreciate or, or, or not so much? First of all, um, food. Food is good. <laughs> uh, especially like with, with the campus ministry, we would, again, we would start at 5.30, that's when we would, uh, we'd have dinner, and even, even now we've, we've moved it to 6, but we have dinner, and a good part of that is it gets people who are on campus to come join for dinner and then a Bible study, they're not going home first and then coming back, because if they're on campus, they go home, they might say, oh, I don't want to 
come back out again. But if you provide that meal of, okay, you've got this half hour or hour that will be between your last class and Bible study, stay with us, come join, have food with us. Um, so that's helpful. It's not a silver bullet though, because you could just eat food at home. But a big important one that I found was just being able to talk with these people, not looking at it necessarily as a, I am the mentor, you are the mentee, I have so much to share with you, but talking with these people just as peers, just getting to know them, listening to them, figuring out their interests and stuff, because not everything has to be a teaching opportunity. You, you can have those teaching opportunities, which are great, but those are gonna come more frequently and they're gonna stick better if you just have a good friendship with this person. Um, no, there isn't a silver bullet. I agree with everything Nick was saying. I think another thing is just act like a human being. <laughs> and I think, I think I have to say this because sometimes I'll go to a church and they're like, oh, hi, you know, how are you doing? I'm in this and I'm in this and I'm in this. And it feels so fake. It feels so one-dimensional. And, and, and I'm not pointing anyone out and I'm not saying I hate any of you. I love you. Mm. I promise. Um, but there's that, there's that point of it. If you're trying to get people to come in, they want to see themselves in you. You can't just, you know, put on this front of I'm redeemed and I'm fully perfect and I'm everything else. They want to see the bad. They want to see the heartache that you've faced and they want to be intellectually stimulated both from your own experiences and what you've learned from being at that church. They want to they get to know you not just for the family but they want to get to know you for um, the help that you can give them in growing in their faith. And I think that's really vital. Don't be don't be like the little bulletin board that we have. Don't be the people on Christ alone. Be like that plus who you are, plus all of your sin, plus everything else. So. Final question for you, Cameron. Do you think Wells would be healthier if from a percentage basis we had fewer, fewer Germans and more Canadians? Yes. <laughs> Please thank our panel.